said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as, an, as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nations that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there was a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, and our fathers, oh, excuse me, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt a king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they could not, would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended, an oppressed, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Man, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside and said, Who are you? Or who, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 
Forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make, up, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made the calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of prophets. Did you bring me, to, did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the, and the star of your god Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought, in it, brought it in with Joshua when they were dispossessed, when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High God does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. May God bless his word to our hearts. Please be seated. Thank you for standing for 53 verses. That's, that's a record setter for us here, if you're visiting. 
Uh, we always stand for the, the reading of God's word before it's preached. Uh, we've never, to my knowledge, I don't think, ever uh, had 53 verses, nor have I preached through 53 verses. Um, but uh, Lord willing, we're going we're gonna to get through it and see what it is that, that he has for us today. And the reason that I decided not to chop this up into smaller bites is because what Stephen is even doing at that time historically is giving a recap of this Jewish history. So I thought, well, if he's recapping it, uh, I'm not going to cut up his recap. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, do the same thing and recap as well. Um, when I retired from law enforcement, for a little while I worked for a technology company. I, I've probably mentioned that before, but, but when I worked for this technology company, what it did is it uh, allowed me to uh, have a lot of contact with detectives in particular across the United States. And we discussed, I, I essentially served a consultant role for a lot of different detectives uh, for their specific cases and helping them use the technology to solve some of their cases. And in one in particular, I uh, met with, uh, on the phone, met with a, a detective several times that was from the Midwest. And what had happened was a young couple, like around 20 years old, had decided that they wanted to get married and that they wanted to get married within, you know, a couple of weeks. They, they felt that uh, they loved each other and that it needed to happen right away, but they didn't have any money for it. So what did they do? They went to the girl's grandfather who had a little bit of money and they figured, oh, we're gonna go ask grandpa if he'll pay for their wedding. And went to grandpa and grandpa said, no, absolutely not. I'm not paying for the wedding. So they came up, hatched a plot, and they murdered her grandfather. And the thinking was that, hey, we're going to kill grandpa, and, you know, then I'll get money. I'll get an inheritance of some kind that I will then be able to turn around and pay for this wedding. Now, set aside for a moment the stupidity uh, of thinking, first of all, that you're going to get away with it. You know, it assumes you're going to get away with this crime. Second of all, the stupidity that somehow, even if you were to get away with it, that all of this was going to take place so quickly and you were just going to get some kind of payout of this thing to turn around and pay for your wedding. I mean, the whole thing is, is, is nonsensical. But think for a second, what was the underlying assumption that the girl, that the granddaughter had, that supported this plot, what would cause them to think that she would actually receive any money? Because clearly just going and providing the pitch to the grandfather didn't work. He wasn't going to give it just because she asked. They didn't have that kind of relationship. There wasn't that level of trust. Um, and when you realize really the only thing that is a foundation for her belief that she was going to be the beneficiary, beneficiary of the inheritance in any way is that she had a biological connection, that she had a pedigree. And by virtue of her blood connection to her grandfather, she thought regardless of her actions, she would receive the benefits of this inheritance. And what we have with these, this particular set of Jews that are disputing with Stephen is the exact same 
logic. They have come to convince themselves that because they have a biological connection, because they can ethnically tie themselves back to a particular person, and you can follow that bloodline, that based on their pedigree, they are going to receive an eternal inheritance, an inheritance that is spoken of over and over again throughout the, the, the Hebrew canon, the Old Testament. And they reveal that that's how their thinking works back in um, chapter 6 of Acts, where in their accusing Stephen, in verse 11, they say uh, uh, they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard of him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. So they're already, the, the thinking that, they're, that they have, the argument that they're using is that they want to instigate other Jews to believe that Stephen is speaking against Moses and God. They knew that that would be the, the, the soft spot for other Jews. Hey, this guy's speaking against Moses, against our own blood. And then when you go on down to verse 13, it says, and they set up false witnesses who says, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. And we looked at that last week when we walked through this uh, portion of scripture, how their hope is set on these treasures that the Jewish people had of the law and of the temple itself. And then it really reveals where their heart is and this um, mistaken, delusional connection in verse 14 where, um, where in the accusing Stephen they say, we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So their mindset is entirely attached to their family history. And so they're even in um, falsely instigating and, and bringing together witnesses against Stephen are using, um, are using that against Stephen. They're essentially saying, hey, this guy Stephen is speaking against your family history, against your, your traditions, your biological family and our custom. And so what we see in chapter seven then is Stephen's response and how he goes about this is absolutely brilliant. I mean, this, it's fascinating to, to, when you realize how he got to the accusation against his accusers at the end. If you think for a moment, you know, these guys that are disputing with him and that have brought this accusation they already are completely sold out to being biased against him, right? We already know from the previous chapter that they told lies about him in secret, that they slandered him in public, that they trumped up false charges against him so that he would actually be brought to trial, so that he would be um, um, found guilty in the court of public opinion. So we already know what their mindset is, and yet we have what our brother Gerald just read. We have 50 verses of what amounts to a speech or really a sermon given by Stephen to these men and to everyone else that's listening. So it kind of begs the question, if they already harbor that kind of hate against him and they've already gone to the efforts of trumping up these charges and instigating people and lying about him, why in heaven's name 
would they allow Stephen to go on that long? Why would they even give him that much airtime? They already know the result that they want. They've already laid the accusations at him. They, in verse 1 of chapter 7, all they say is, are these things so? And now we have Stephen's response, and he actually gets this, what in our Bibles amounts to 50 verses of response to provide uh, his defense or to give his reason uh, that has to do with this family inheritance. And the reason that he is, I, I believe, that he's allowed that much airtime and he's given that much latitude to say all this is because in recapping the history of the Jews, in a sense, he was retelling their family history. And from their perspective, he is potentially actually corroborating their own thinking. And we all do this, right? We hear things that we want to hear. You pick out things that you want to pick out. You know, you hear the same news about different political events, and people have these wildly different conclusions after they hear them because they have a, a, uh, a biased perspective. And these men fit squarely into that category. And so Stephen goes on to lay out this entire family history that I believe they're listening to with great interest because they're actually hearing about themselves. So what Stephen does is he goes about this method of, of course, hitting the heroes of their history, the heroes of the faith. It's virtually a who's who of the, of the Jewish history. But what it would seem that these guys that have put him on trial are not realizing is that he is fitting in between each of the accounts of the who's who, the failures that are taking place. The rejection that these men, that different men and different Jews in particular were showing of God. And so the context of what Stephen has to say is contained actually in just one phrase in verse 2. So starting at verse 1, it says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. So his launching point is going to be, for the majority of talking about the family history, is going to be Abraham. That's where he's going to start. But he makes sure to put a marker there that shows that even whatever takes place with Abraham is under the overarching um, context of the God of glory. Stephen could have started with Genesis 3.15. That's where the original promise was. That original promise said, hey, there's going to be an offspring that comes from the woman. That was that first promise that took place. That's where we first see, in a sense, this estate planning where God promises that there is going to be an offspring of the woman and that that's where the, the, uh, their hope should be. But that falls underneath that God of glory, but Stephen seems to fast forward past, uh, past Genesis 3 and past the hope potentially of Noah and then past Noah uh, all the way to Abraham because at 
Abraham is the creation of the Jewish people. So he knows their pride is attached to the people. Their pride is attached to this biological line. That's where their hope is. So he starts his argument with where that line starts, which is with Abraham. So in, in that context, this overarching context, he, he kind of sets the tone and then moves on, is within the glory of God. But then he moves on to the family history. And I'm just going to walk through different spots where he gives their family history, and they're listening, of course, with selective memory, even though he's saying um, he's, he's addressing both the provision of God and the blessing of God toward his chosen people in the Jews, but he is also including the parts where man is rejecting that same God. And I believe they're only hearing one side of it. So what we see is that in verses 2 through 8 of chapter 7, Stephen begins by talking about Abraham. Hey, the guy who started it all, in a sense. And down in verse 5, we see this first hopeful kind of uh, language. It says, yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him though he had no child. So I'm hoping to just plant this seed and see how you can follow how it grows and his argument takes place is that their hope is in people. He starts with the first guy that God chose and brought out of the land after the uh, Tower of Babel established the Jewish people from Abraham. Abraham himself didn't have a child at that time and yet God promised a possession. So we're talking about estate planning to his offspring after him. So why wouldn't they want to hear that? Yeah, absolutely, carry on. We're part of his offspring. We're who you're talking about. And then it continues down at verse 8. And he gave the covenant, he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of the 12 patriarchs. And so we see that Stephen digs in. He's like, okay, you've got Abraham beginning of the Jews, and then it moves on through Isaac and Jacob. It then moves on through the 12 patriarchs. And then we see how Stephen sneaks in, or, you know, I, I mean, he proclaims it clearly, but uh, it, it's right there in verse 9 where it says, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. So these same people that are part of that line that they're taking so much pride in, he also adds, by the way, those patriarchs, they were jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. But, of course, he continues on and he moves right back over to the hopeful side of what God is doing through his particular people. And in the second half of that same verse, but God was with him. And he goes on to, to uh, rescue him, right? But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over, over Egypt and over all his household. So, okay, we're right back to the promise. We've got Abraham, we've got Isaac, we've got Jacob, we've got the 12 patriarchs. And then we move on down to Joseph. And now Joseph, God was with him and God rescued him. And then in fact, um, at verse 17, it says, um, as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. 
So again, we have this, this picture that they're going to be hearing, this connection biologically to their family tree, and look how much God is blessing each of these individuals, these champions of the faith, and God is continuing to bless them in verse 17 there where they started to grow abundantly. But then at verse 19, Stephen also demonstrates again this re the rejection about talking um, about Pharaoh, this is the new Pharaoh, who dealt shrewdly with their race and forced our fathers to expose the infants so they would not be kept alive. So we have again a shift into a, uh, uh, a Pharaoh that was not faithful, that hated the Jewish people, that hated God, and then slides back in at verse 20 to talk about the blessings. At this time now enters Moses. So we've got Abraham, we've got Isaac, We've got Jacob, we have all 12 patriarchs mentioned, and now he's moved into Moses. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. In verse 22, and Moses was instructed in all wisdom and of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So are you seeing how these same men who are disputing with him and who are bringing these charges against him, and that part of the charges that they're bringing is that Stephen has spoken against Moses, against their customs, against their traditions. That's the charge, and so Stephen is now, in his defense, is, is Dis, uh, describing this history, this family history, that's bringing all these same people back up. And here, Moses is mighty in word and deed. But if you move on down to verse 27, we get to this account where uh, Moses is convinced that he has been chosen by God and he's supposed to go stand up for his people. But in, starting in verse uh, 27, we have this rejection of Moses by God's own people to the point that Moses even has to flee. At verse 28 there, this, so this is another Jew do you, saying to Moses, do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. So now these same Jewish people, these people that are God's chosen people are the ones that are rejecting the person that God has chosen to be their leader. But we move back over, and this is what Stephen's doing. He moves right back over to this idea of God's provision and God's blessing. And we see that God really does make Moses their ruler. So the same guy that the Jews rejected at verse uh, 34, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness of 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. You see what Stephen is doing. The accusation is that he is speaking against Moses, 
and against their customs, and it's Stephen that's actually recapping and reviewing for them all of those same things, their same history that keeps making its way from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 patriarchs, now to Moses. And he is shining this light on Moses himself to demonstrate, in one sense, his own innocence, that he is not speaking against Moses, quite the contrary. But he's also, while he's doing this, he's bringing them along. I think that they have no idea what is going to be coming. But even in his account here, as he's reviewing, he's talking about, he's speaking in glowing terms of the fact that Moses was the chosen one of God to lead his people. But then he adds right in there how God's own people rejected Moses at verses uh, 39 to 41. Our fathers, so these are Jews, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside and in their hearts turned, they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. So Stephen is essentially showing that even though the Jewish people, the, the people that they're claiming um, in positive terms to be their flesh and blood and, and the basis of their hope, that their fathers are the ones that actually rejected Moses, that said they wanted to go back to slavery, that said that they wanted idols to worship. I mean, it is mind-blowing that he is actually adding this in and illustrating that this is part of that same family history that they are taking credit for and are expecting um, to get them to the inheritance. And then one more time, he moves now from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 patriarchs, all of that time spent on Moses. And now he transitions even beyond that to these other huge names within the um, uh, Jewish history in verses uh, 44 to 47, where he talks about the fact that God provided the Ark of the Covenant, he provided the tabernacle, and that that was given to Joshua, that was given to David, that was given to Solomon, who found favor with God. And in fact, starting halfway through verse 45, it says, so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. So Stephen is continuing to, to draw, the, as far as that whole who's who, he's continuing to say all the big names that they would have been so proud of in their faith while filling in in between the truth of what happened in the lives of these different men and throughout the uh, um, the lives, the, the history, the generations of the Hebrews. So at this point, they are even perhaps taking pride. Their hearts are maybe filled with, yes, you are making our argument for us, Stephen. This, the, yes, these are the people, this is the history, because what they're hearing 
is the promise that was given to Abraham and that was then transferred to Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 patriarchs. They're hearing that Joseph was rescued. They're hearing that Moses was beautiful in God's sight and that God did make Moses their ruler. They're hearing that God provided the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle to Joshua and to David and to Solomon and that they found favor in God's eyes. That's what they hear. What they didn't hear is that that same people were jealous of Joseph and sold him into slavery. They rejected Moses. They longed to go back to Egypt, back to that tyrant Pharaoh, back to being enslaved, and they longed to have idols to worship. And it's based on this whole history that he is laying out that Stephen lowers the boom right here in verse 51. I can't even imagine that the the change of countenance when somebody has no idea, you know, look over here. And then he, he comes up with a right cross, essentially. At verse 51, he's gone from describing in a narrative fashion the history of their people something that presumably that the, the very thing that they're taking pride in, and then you figure he looks them square in the eyes in verse 51. You see the quotation mark. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. They were trying to say that Stephen was speaking against the law, that he was speaking against the temple, that he was speaking against Moses, and Moses serves the whole thing up on a, on a platter and said, let me, let me walk you through our history. You're not in that, that list of godly blessings and provisions. You people fit squarely in the list of those that wanted to sell Joseph into slavery, that longed to, be go, that longed to go back to slavery yourself, that wanted idols, that refused to obey. That's the group that you belong to. You are not a beneficiary of the family inheritance of the eternal inheritance. And the connections that go back and forth between everything that Stephen is saying that just completely dismantles their trumped up charges is uh, something only, I believe, that the Holy Spirit could have inspired. You know, the Abrahamic estate planning falls under that primary principle of the glory of God. But that's not what they were focused on. They were not focused on the glory of God. They were focused on their own personal glory. And when anyone else had something to say, in this case Stephen, about who Christ was and what he did and why he came, in other words, telling them, hey, you're a sinner. You put him, your sin put him on the cross that you need a savior, they would have no part of it. And that's no different than us today. People do not want to hear that. 
They don't want to hear about accountability. They don't want to hear that they're a sinner. They don't want to hear that it's their sin that put Jesus on the cross. Their focus was not on God, but on Abraham. Their focus was not on, was on this pedigree and on the person that the promise was given to, not the actual promise itself, not the promised person. They wanted somebody physical. They wanted something physical to touch. They wanted to be able to say, there's a name associated with, with this promise, Abraham, and I'm associated to the guy who's associated to the promise. Therefore, I am a recipient of the promise. Instead of the promise being of the righteous one that was to come. You know, we, we say things, you know, we say things, you know, when, when we're talking about some of these concepts and we talk about the, the uh, Abrahamic covenant or the Davidic covenant or uh, the Noahic covenant or um, the Mosaic covenant, but we have to remember that all of these covenants, they weren't Abraham's covenant. They weren't Moses's covenant. They weren't David's covenant. They were God's covenant with a particular person at a particular time in history. It's always God's covenant that he condescends and makes with his people. And yes, there are representatives, but that's because it all falls under the God of glory. More accurately is the fact that the first covenant was the Adamic covenant. It was that covenant in Genesis 3.15 where God says there's going to be an offspring that is going to save his people. But that was a covenant made with the first Adam. That would have been a much better association of their lineage, is being connected to the first Adam who brought sin into the world. And Stephen is trying to point to them that there is a second Adam who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I need to show you this connection as well. So look how right before, so at, at verse 49, if you would just look here at, at chapter 7, verse 49, notice how he ends his speech, his sermon, before he levels the accusation of verse 51, okay? Verse 49, where he's quoting uh, the prophet, and he's saying, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the, the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? That's where he closes that section out. Now, this is what is fascinating. If you just flip back to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, Look at verses 34, starting at verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He's using similar language to talk about how um, the enemies are being made the footstool. And then he goes on to say, Peter does in his sermon, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
So Stephen is doing the same thing. He is setting the same stage in a sense, of course, to ultimately point to the same person of Jesus Christ, who was the fulfillment of all of these promises of the Jewish people and where they were cut to the heart and said, what must we do to be saved? We have an entirely different response by these people, these men who are, um, who are disputing with Stephen. Now, certainly we can say that salvation really is a matter of pedigree, but it is not a matter of biological association. The exclusivity of our family inheritance is not a result of our bloodline, but of Christ's. Are you a recipient of Christ's forgiving blood? Have you, if you want to receive the forgiveness of sins and the giving of the Holy Spirit, it comes exclusively through Jesus Christ. Just as those men were as foolish as the young couple who thought that murdering the grandfather was going to get them somehow this family inheritance. These men were doing the same thing, and I would suggest that there are people today, and perhaps people in here today, hearing me right now, that are using an equally flawed logic. In other words, if you think there is any physical thing, any earthly thing that earns you in an eternal inheritance, that gives you the right to say, I will be in heaven with my God, that is associated with this earth, then you are using the same logic. If you had Christian parents and you grew up in a church and you have gotten baptized and you take communion, those things in and of themselves do not save. They're physical things, they're gifts from God, they're things for which we should be thankful, but they do not save. If you attended a Christian high school, you took classes at a Christian college, that is not going to do it. If you give money to the church, you give to charities, that is not going to save you. If you're a generally, generally nice person and a contributing member of society, you love your family, you take care of your kids, you love your wife, you love your husband, you tend to your ailing parents. These are all wonderful things. They will not save you any more than being biologically associated to the Jewish line is a right to salvation. Forgiveness of sins and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit is exclusively through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. For my brothers and sisters that are here today, that you know that you have repented and that your hope is in Christ and that you are an adopted child and you know for a fact that you are going to be the recipient of the family inheritance, I just want to mention two things. First of all, in Hebrews 9, 15, it says, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. The first thing I want to tell you is you can have assurance. This world brings all kinds of doubt into our lives. We see, we see things happen to us physically 
things that happen to us emotionally, things that happen to our family, that happen to our finances, that happen in this world that just shake our foundation sometimes. And I want to assure you that you have, through Christ, an eternal inheritance. You have access to the glory that Christ is enjoying, that we get to participate in that. So we have assurance. First Peter chapter 1 at verse 3 Almost there. says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen to verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you realize this? You can have this assurance that there is an inheritance that you have access to that is imperishable, that is undefiled and unfading, and that is being kept in heaven, that's being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So the first thing is that you can have assurance that you have access. And then the second thing is actually a question. Are you living with that assurance? Do you live with that assurance? Because, look, it is horrible and it is wrong for anyone to think that because of any of these physical things, whether it's a biological connection or any of these other physical things that I mentioned, to fool themselves into thinking that they have access to an eternal inheritance that they don't have access to at all. But you want to know what else is criminal? To have access and to live like you don't. Does your life tell the story of a person that is assured that you have an imperishable inheritance waiting for you? Do you talk about Christ because you have confidence that you have nothing to fear because there is an imperishable inheritance waiting for you? Do you live with an eternal perspective or are you more concerned about what's going to happen over the next year? What's going to happen over the next month? You get mad about what's going to happen this evening. When you have an eternal perspective, all of those things changes. I asked Mark to read um, Psalm 24 this morning for our call to worship because I wanted to finish by pointing out Psalm 24, verses 7 to 10. If you have the hope of Christ in you, and you know that you are going to have access to that imperishable inheritance. This is for you. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. 
Who is this king of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the king of glory. The reason the gates are going to open is because Christ is going to return, mighty in battle. He is going to return, and we are going to gain that imperishable inheritance. That means that it should affect every day of your life, not just Sundays. Take this assurance, apply it to your lives, apply it to the way that you love your spouse, apply it to the way that you serve as an employee at your company, apply it to the way that you treat your friends, apply it to the way that you parent. An eternal perspective is a God-honoring perspective you do have access to that family inheritance. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for, for foolishly thinking that we have anything to grab onto, that we have anything to point to, that there's something that we've done that will give us a leg up. But thank you for the reconciliation that we have with you through Jesus. Thank you that it is not a biological connection, but that you have adopted your children to be yours and that you are guarding that inheritance for us. Lord, help us to live in light of that. In Jesus' name, amen.